Okay. So, as Carlos finished with, we're going to get into how Jesus and the apostles brought the word to people, how they preached the gospel. One thing that I went over at the end of last week's teaching was that you have the teachings of, or the, the preaching specifically of Jesus to his audience first. And I mentioned how when Jesus is preaching, every single person he talked to categorically was an unbeliever in the sense that nobody could be born again yet until Jesus died and rose again. There were those who believed in him and were going to be born again, and those would be people who were first Jesus' 12 apostles or his 12 disciples, and then you had the hundreds, even thousands of other, other disciples that followed him during, during the course of his ministry. But we know that by the time you get to the first chapter of Acts, the believers that gathered together to await the promise of the Holy Spirit were only numbered at 120, which means when Jesus started his ministry, he called his 12, got a bunch of crowds to follow him. At one point, he had thousands of disciples. He preached a hard message. Thousands of them left, and it, over the course of time, narrowed down to 120. And 500 people, the Bible says, actually witnessed Jesus in his resurrected state. So what that tells you is that you're not always going to get devoted followers just because they see something miraculous, right? And what you see in this common denominator with Jesus and his loyal followers were those who listened to his word very closely. And so it's important for us as disciples of Jesus to listen to his word, and in our case, to listen to how he taught the gospel, how he preached it, and to follow that example. So one thing I also mentioned last week that we're going to get into today is if you look at how Jesus preached the gospel, how he introduced his message, we will get a good handle on how we ought to introduce our message, or really it's the message of the gospel um, in our own words. The apostles did the same to their audience. And then you get into once a person receives Christ or believes the gospel, what do they need to be taught to begin growing spiritually after they've been born again? Good to see you, Dan. How you doing? Good. Um, so what we're going to start with today is how Jesus preached the gospel. And there's basically three, three steps to what he did or three main focuses to his message. And then after that, we're going to get into how the apostles taught the basics to people who believe the gospel. Now, this is relevant to us in two ways. Number one, if we don't personally have an understanding of these things, we're not going to be able to believe comprehensively and to grow spiritually. Number two, if we don't understand this, we're not going to be able to share it with other people, which means we won't be able to be good sowers of the word ourselves if we don't understand these things. Okay. So now another thing that we're doing is that this teaching today and then the teaching that I'll be doing next Sunday is going to be two parts for a class that we're actually going to repeat on as of now, probably a quarterly basis, but it could be more or less than that, just depending on the need. And so because of that, the recording is going to be a little bit different. And so for the sake of continuity and just smoothness, refrain from making comments in the microphone, but ask questions in the microphone. So we're going to focus on questions that you guys have and make sure those are recorded so that they are part, part of the, what we're going to use for the class. But if you have comments, you can, you can say them, that's fine, um, but they just won't be repeated in a microphone. Any comments you might have after, those are fine. 
any comments you guys can make to each other or you can make to me after afterwards is, is uh, no big deal. But just for the sake of today's recording, we're just going to stick with questions. All right. Is everyone ready? Note-taking implements? Yes? <laughs> I, would, I would highly recommend you guys take notes for this, simply because this is something that if you get it, you will use repeatedly the rest of your life for people when it comes to making disciples. So really important information. Okay, to start, we're going to look at the ministry of Jesus. There's three main focuses for Jesus' ministry. I mentioned this last Sunday. The three main things that came out of Jesus' mouth when he preached and taught the gospel were one, repentance, or to repent. Number two, to believe. And number three, to follow. All three of these things surround Jesus' entire ministry. Now, for those of you who remember from last week and previous weeks, what did Jesus teach first out of those three things? The kingdom, of God, the, the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and believe the gospel. Mm -hmm. Yep. So you've got, that's Mark 1.15 that Jacob just mentioned. It says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, therefore, and believe in the gospel. So repent comes first, and then he said to believe. Now, another thing that's important to note when it comes to repentance is that Jesus, his ministry was preceded by a character called John the Baptist. If you guys are familiar with John's ministry, he came preaching a baptism of repentance. Now, Jesus picks up the baton that was left by John the Baptist in telling people, first things first, to repent and then to believe. So you have this forerunner, John the Baptist, who emphasizes repentance during the course of his ministry. That introduces Jesus. Jesus begins with repentance and then you see his ministry move into the message of what people were taught to believe. So this tells us, just for the sake of emphasis and also for proper order, that repentance was intended by God and it's intended by Jesus. And you see the same thing in the teaching of the apostles. Uh, repentance was meant to be the first thing that we introduced to a person. The reason why is because if you try to tell somebody to believe something, the first thing that most people will do is think of how they can incorporate that belief into the beliefs they already have, which means nothing really changes. They've just added Jesus to their life rather than actually turning their life over to Jesus completely. And this is, this is what people will typically do. And I've, I've seen this happen and we've, we see this all over the world where people want to believe in Jesus, but keep their own ways at the same time, right? Repentance means shedding what is not supposed to be there so that the soil, if you will, is prepared to receive these new beliefs, which is the belief in Jesus. So you have to put off the old in order to put on the new. Jesus said you can't put new wine into old wineskins. This is an analogy that Jesus used. He said otherwise the wineskins burst because new wine produces gases and it causes the, the skins to burst because the, the old skins don't have the ability to stretch enough to hold the new wine. So the point is you can't put new beliefs into old paradigms. And that's why repentance has to come first. So you have to tell a person first, it is expected that our ways and our thinking changes before we can introduce new beliefs. Amen? This is number one. So just make sure 
when it comes to your preaching of the gospel and your understanding, you're not telling people to believe, but also condoning keeping what they already know or how they already think at the same time. Amen? Okay. That's why repentance has to come first. So next is belief. And that's in Mark 1.15 where Jesus said, repent therefore and then believe in the gospel. And then the very next thing you see him doing is he approaches like Peter and Andrew, Andrew or James and John or Matthew, the tax collector. He approaches them and tells them to follow him. Now, following Jesus in, if you stick to the language of following in the ancient world, that simply meant being someone's student or pupil. So typically when a rabbi, like a Jewish rabbi, for example, would tell people to follow, that simply meant, hey, be a student of mine. That's what that language meant. So when Jesus is going to people and say, come follow me, he's saying, I'm going to be your teacher or your rabbi or your master. You're going to learn from me. You're going to hear and learn from what I say and also from what I do, watching my example, so that the result would be you say what I say and do what I do. And Jesus said that whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow him is not worthy of him. This is in Matthew 10. I think it's in verse 38. He says that. So following Christ, saying what he said, doing what he did is essential to being able to be worthy of associating with Christ to begin with. And that's why it's essential to Jesus teaching. So we're going to go back to repentance. We're going to break this down in detail. There are essentially five different forms of repentance that Jesus talked about, and they're all in the Gospels. So everything that we're going to go over today, you will find taught by Jesus to unbelievers in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which means the things that we're going over apply to unbelievers as well as to believers. So this is essential when it comes to preaching the gospel to people. First things first. The first person to turn to Matthew 16, 24 can tell me what the first form of repentance is. If you anyone desires. Turn to it. <laughs> Deny himself. Deny himself. There we go. Amen. So, the definition of repentance is to change your mind, change your ways, turn around, go the other direction. That's what repentance means. The first form of changing or turning around, Jesus mentioned, is to deny yourself. Deny yourself. Now, defined, Jesus said this in different words in John chapter 12, verse 24. So somebody please turn to John 12, verse 24. How did Jesus state this in other words? Raise your hand when you got it. Jure? Keep going.
verse 25. Or just read it off the screen, too. There we go. He who loves his life. Well, actually, it does start in verse 24 because a grain of wheat has to fall into the ground and die. This is the illustration he uses. Then he defines what that means. That if you love your life in this world, you will lose it. But if you hate your life in this world, you will keep it for eternal life. The point is that if you become too attached to life here or you love your life here too much, you will lose it eternally. Keeping your life eternally means, he uses a very strong word, hating it. That doesn't mean you despise life on earth. It simply means that compared to life eternal, the joys and pleasures and benefits of this life pales in comparison. That's what it means. That you don't look at your earthly life and love it too much to give it up. An example, and Jesus encountered this all the time, and this is where people would say, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And they would say, but first let me go and bury my father. Or you have the rich young ruler who says, Lord, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, keep what's in your law, keep the commandments. And he says, well, I've kept all those from my youth. And Jesus says, well, you have one thing you're lacking. Go and sell what you have and give to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. And it says this man went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. He didn't follow Jesus because he was not willing to give up what he loved in his earthly life, which was his money. Right? So, keeping life eternal requires denying or renouncing attachment to your earthly life. That's what deny yourself means. It doesn't mean hate yourself. Because the Bible says you have to love your neighbor as you love yourself, so of course you have to love your own life. But truly loving life as God intended it means denying life as God did not intend it. And that's what you're denying. You're denying the worldly way of living. That's what has to happen. That's the first form of repentance. Now this has to come first, because without this first kind of repentance... People are not going to obey the other kinds of repentance. And we'll explain why in a moment. So that's the first one. You could just label it as deny yourself. And you can use Matthew 16, verses 24 through 27, and then John 12, verses 24 through 25, which is the two passages we referred to. Deny yourself. Second form of repentance. Jesus said that a person has to deny self-righteousness. So you could write down your notes, deny self-righteousness. Let's go to Luke chapter 18. Verses 12, or excuse me, 10 through 14. Luke 18, verses 10 through 14. Or let's start in verse 9, actually. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. 
How many people do we meet when we ask them if they believe they're going to heaven and they say, because I'm a good person? Amen. That's called trusting in yourself that you are righteous. What Jesus is about to say directly confronts that. He says, verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray. Modern uh, explanation, people that approach God. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. So you've got the religious person and then the admitted sinner. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with it with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Now, most people wouldn't say it this way, but the way most people say this is, well, I'm a good person because I'm not doing those really bad things. In other words, I'm not like other men, right? Everybody is a good person, or most people would say that they're a good person compared to, say, Hitler. Or compared to the devil, people would say, I'm a good person. But this is exactly what Jesus is confronting. They say, I'm a good person because I'm not like other men, right? So then he says, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. This is the second excuse. People look at their own good works and they say, number one, I'm not like those other bad people. And here are my good works. Most people will say, I was confirmed as a child. I go to church every week. I pray before I go to bed at night. They're attaching their sense of eternal security to what they do. So a person who trusts in themselves to be righteous makes it a dead giveaway when they say, I'm a good person because I'm not like other people, and I'm a good person because here's what I do. Amen. So, then you have verse 13. And the tax collector, this is the admitted sinner, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. In other words, he has no boldness to approach God because of being ashamed. But beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You've got two things. He confesses his sins and he pleads God for his mercy or his grace. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we, what? Confess our sins. He is faithful and just to what? Forgive and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So confessing sin is essential. Then the Bible says in Titus 3, I believe it's in verse 5, says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Okay? So you've got the sinner who admits to having sin and who prays for God's mercy. Those two elements here. Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It takes humility, admitting to being a sinner, and praying for God's mercy, putting faith in Jesus to receive mercy. That's how a person is justified, not by good works. So that means an essential form of repentance is to deny self-righteousness. You cannot trust in yourself to be righteous. As long as you do, you go away condemned rather than justified. That's what Jesus is teaching. So first form of repentance is deny yourself. Second form is deny self-righteousness. People have to change their minds about what they believe makes them righteous if they're going to be saved. 
If they believe that they save themselves, they haven't repented in that area. That's why this is essential. Make sense? Uh, third form of repentance. This is where specific actions come into play. And this is what John the Baptist began to teach. And you have Jesus teaching this in Matthew 5, verses 27 through 48. Matthew 5, verses 27 through 48. And then we're going to look at Luke chapter 3, verse 8. Let's, let's actually start with Luke 3. We'll do that first. Luke 3, verse 8. John the Baptist is preaching. Actually, 7. we got to start in verse 7. <laughs> then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized. This is just general people that are coming to church, let's say. He calls them a brood of vipers. <laughs> a brood is basically a pile of just hatched snakes, baby snakes. They're the most venomous. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Verse 8. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. This is another excuse that people say to condone a lack of repentance. They'll say, oh, and I've heard this. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this. My granddad was a pastor. Right? My grandma prays for me. I was raised in the church. I grew up going to Sunday school. In other words, they justify themselves on the basis of either their lineage, their history, or their background because it was religious in some way, shape, or form. That's exactly what John the Baptist is confronting. He's saying, don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, Abraham was justified and we're his kids, so therefore we are too. In other words, salvation doesn't pass down from generation to generation. Everyone has to make their own choice. Amen? That's the second thing. So the first thing he said was bear fruit worthy of repentance, which means if a person's mind has changed, you will expect their actions to change as well. Otherwise, their mind hasn't changed. So the fruit worthy of repentance means the behavioral differences that result from a change of mind. That's fruit befitting of or worthy of repentance. So then you go to verse 12. Or 10, excuse me, 10. So the people asked him saying, what shall we do? Okay, what do we do? How do we repent? He answered and said to them, this is verse 11. He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. So in other words, stop being so selfish. Start giving. That's a form of, that's a general task you can give to an overall crowd when it comes to repentance. Then he specifies it. This is where it gets relevant to individuals. Verse 12. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Tax collectors were known to steal from the taxes that they collected from people to increase their pay. But it was theft. So he's saying, Quit stealing. Then... 
Verse 13 or 14. Then the soldiers asked him, saying, What shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. So notice how he gives instructions about repentance to people that are specific to their lifestyle. So that means when it comes to repentance, it's usually not enough just to tell a person, Repent. And? What do I repent of? We have to make it specific. So if you're meeting with a person or you're talking to a person about Christ, and let's say you're getting into the conversation about repentance, you've talked about denying, denying yourself, denying yourself righteousness, then it comes to confessing and turning away from sin. Repentance in action. The best thing to do is to give them a step that is relevant to what they are facing, what their lifestyle is, or a sin that you, you and others see in their life that they know is there. For a lot of people... Let's say it's a work environment, you're around a lot of coworkers, and let's say you're talking to somebody and they just cuss a lot. You can tell them, hey, maybe you should start cleaning up your talk a little bit. That is a form of repentance that they can do. Let's say it's somebody that you know has been working a job, then they have been stealing. Saying they're clocking in earlier than they're actually coming to work. That's stealing, right? So you can say, hey, stop doing that, right? So in other words... Give a person something specific to their lifestyle. That's how you can have a person begin repenting. And this also includes, simply put, things that people are convicted of in their own hearts. Sometimes you don't have to say an example. Sometimes you just start talking about repentance and somebody will just simply tell you what they're convicted of. And they can start doing that. So you just use these as Two methods. One is have them repent of what they're convicted of. Two, have them repent of something that you come up with based on their own lifestyle. And that's how a person can begin in repentance. One verse that's just about repentance in general that's really valuable to share and to know for yourself is Luke 13, verses 3 through 5. In Luke 13, verses 3 through 5, two times Jesus says, Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And in context, he was talking about a, he's got two examples. He's, there's, got, there's a group of people that suffered a random catastrophe where a building collapsed on them and killed them. And then he had an example where these, this group of people were executed in an exceptionally more gruesome way. And the people were taking those two groups of people and saying, man, something really bad happened to them. So they must have been bad people. And then you have, well, these people were killed in a really, really gruesome way, so they must have been really bad people. And Jesus is saying, hey, they're not any worse than you. If you don't repent, you're going to die or perish the same way they did. And perishing the same way as everyone else is talking about dying and being condemned. That would be going to hell, right? So repentance is essential, and that's what Luke 13, verses 3 through 5 is trying to say. So to summarize this third form of repentance, you could simply say it means acknowledging and beginning to turn away from either sin that a person is convicted of or that you present to them as relevant to their own lifestyle. You could just say, in summary, begin to take action 
of repentance. That's that third one. What convicts a person or what they're convicted of. Is everyone good there? Okay. Fourth form of repentance. Now, as a reminder, these are all things that Jesus taught to people who weren't even believers yet. So that's why it's important for us to know and share these things when we're, when we're sharing our faith. Fourth point is to accept what Jesus referred to as the inevitable hardship and or persecution for one's faith in Christ. One form of repentance, or I should say this first, one form of a lack of repentance that Jesus refers to, we mentioned this briefly about the parable of the sower last week, when people receive the word with gladness and they immediately spring up, but tribulations or persecutions arise for the sake of the word and immediately they stumble because they have no root in themselves. That is seed or word sown in a person's life that they did not produce anything from because they didn't expect nor want to expect that they would be persecuted for that belief. Long story short, this means a person has to repent from the idea that following Jesus will be easy and comfortable. This is a form of repentance. Jesus said it's essential that you let go of this desire or lust for comfort. Because Jesus said there will, if the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3, that all who desire to live godly in Christ shall or will suffer persecution. Everyone who truly follows Jesus and who is truly saved is going to encounter some kind of suffering for what they believe. It doesn't necessarily have to be being persecuted by another person, but there are going to be hardships that come. One of them, the Bible says in 1 Peter 4, that he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, which simply means when you stop sinning, it's uncomfortable to your flesh. It is a form of suffering to the flesh to stop sinning, right? You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and that's a form of suffering. That's a form, it's a form, you could say, of persecution from the flesh, because your flesh is trying to beat you up for repenting. Amen. First Peter 4, 1 and 2. Another verse to look at would be Matthew 16, 24, which we mentioned for a previous point. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said, Everyone who desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Then he says, take up his cross and follow me. Taking up the cross is language that refers to when a criminal who is uh, extra bad of a criminal was also required to carry the cross beam for the crucifix on their shoulders down this path or up the hill to where they were going to be crucified. And they referred to that as a walk of shame. So while they're being led up to the place where they're going to be hung on the cross, they would carry this cross beam and crowds would stand on the side of this path. And they were told, the crowds were told, your job is to insult, revile, throw food at, spit on, throw rocks at. It was basically like, Make this person feel the worst they've ever felt in their life before they get crucified. 
that was what taking up your cross meant. So Jesus is saying, if you desire to come after me, you have to be willing to be reviled, insulted, and shamed, and ridiculed by the world. That was his point. And to patiently endure that without giving up on your faith. That's the point. That's what take up your cross means. That's persecution. And Jesus says this is for anyone who desires to come after him. Anyone. This isn't just people who are really mature in their faith and can handle this kind of information. He's saying anybody who wants to come after me, you have any interest in me, you have to know that in addition to denying yourself, you have to be willing to take up a cross. Endure what's called a walk of shame. You won't get any of that shame or ridicule from God, but you will get it from the world. You have to be willing to accept that. Amen? Okay. Then, I already mentioned 2 Timothy 3, it's specifically verse 12, that says everyone who lives godly will suffer persecution. So again, that's 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. And then you've got Matthew 5, verse 10. Matthew 5 and verse 10. He says you're blessed if you're persecuted. Notice in this language, he's not saying you're happier. or He's not just saying that you can be happy if you're persecuted. He's saying blessed are those which are persecuted for righteousness sake because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words... Going to heaven depends on being persecuted for righteousness' sake. The Greek word for blessed simply means happy. In other words, you can be happy that you're persecuted for your faith and for the righteousness by which you live because that is living proof and evidence that you are going to heaven. That's what that verse is trying to say. That's why accepting inevitable hardship or persecution for one's faith is considered an essential part of repentance. Because without it, if you read later in Matthew 5, the very next verse, verse 11, Jesus talks that people who aren't persecuted and were loved by the world are those who were of false prophets. So this says, when men revile you, persecute you, say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake, and then go to the next verse, verse 12. Rejoice, be glad, Great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Verse 13. Oh, excuse me, that's the wrong account. Luke chapter 6. So he adds to the blessing of being persecuted. But in Luke's account, excuse me, Luke chapter 6, he says, I'll just pull it up real quick. Verse 26, Luke Luke 6, verse 26. He says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. So he's saying, you are blessed when the world hates you because the world hated the prophets who were before you. But woe to you, in other words, be warned, considerate sadness, if everyone in the world speaks well of you, because they did the same to people who are false prophets. Another reason why it's why accepting suffering or persecution for faith is considered an essential part of repentance. 
You're blessed when you're persecuted because that means the kingdom of heaven belongs to you when you're persecuted. Amen? Okay. Last point for repentance. Everyone clear on that fourth one about hardship persecution? Okay. Last one for repentance. Jesus taught this so many times. Let go of, or you could say renounce, attachment to any material possession or human relationship. Renounce attachment to any material possession or human relationship. This is basically a breakdown of denying yourself, but adding some specifics. I'm going to give you guys a couple of references for scripture. We're not going to read through all of these. But good ones to write down are Luke 9, verses 57 through 62. Luke 9, verses 57 through 62. Then Luke 14, verses 26 through 33. 14 of Luke, verses 26 through 33. First one was Luke 9. Verses 57 through 62. 9, 57 through 62. And then I'll give you one more. Matthew 10, verses 28 through 39. Matthew 10, verses 28 through 39. That one in Matthew 10, we are going to read just as an example here. Matthew 10. Start in verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both body, soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. Now, if we pause there, a lot of people go, oh, wait a second. I thought Jesus did come to bring peace. What about the scriptures we quoted in Sunday school when we did a nativity reenactment? Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Notice that in that passage, which is also in Matthew or Luke, excuse me, it says, it is peace on earth, goodwill toward men, but it's from God. In Romans 5, it says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The peace that Jesus came to bring is peace with God. He did not come to bring world peace. <laughs> There's a difference. <laughs> Jesus came to bring peace with God, not world peace. So when you see those bumper stickers that say coexist, 
You guys know what I'm talking about? Not biblical. Right? Jesus came to bring peace with God, not world peace or peace on earth. The difference is that when people think, oh, following Jesus is going to make everything easier. That's not always true. Most cases, it's not. And especially in regards to relationships. So if you keep reading, verse 30, uh, end of verse 34, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. What does that sword mean? What does a sword do? It divides. Yep. It severs and divides. Verse 35, for I have, okay, no, I won't get into that. Verse 35, for I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. That's actually a quote from Micah, in case you're interested. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. So an aspect of denying oneself or denying one's own, own life is that you be willing to lose, in this case, he says, family members for the sake of the gospel. This doesn't mean you have justification to get divorced. That's not what this is talking about. That would be an abuse of the scripture. The context is when people who are unbelievers or who do not follow Jesus reject you for what you believe, specifically for what you believe. If you are denied or disowned by family for your faith, being willing to leave those relationships for the sake of following Christ, that's what this is talking about. That's what this means. If you look at one example, Abraham walked this out. You can read about this in Genesis chapter 12. God called Abraham to leave his father's house and to leave his father's ways in order to go to the land of promise. But before this, Abraham was married. His wife was called Sarai. Her name was later changed to Sarah. He left his father's house eventually, but he did keep his wife. In other words, Abraham did not divorce his wife because of what God said. Because when you get married, you become one flesh. So this is, of course, is not talking about marriages unless the unbelieving spouse cho chooses to divorce you as a believer for your faith. That's a different thing. I won't get into that in detail. Main point is being willing to lose relationships. This includes friendships. There's some friendships that you'll have to deny or let go of. Then to material possessions. I mentioned the rich young ruler. That's talked about in Mark 10, verses 17 through 31. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. We won't have to, uh, have to read this in detail. I already mentioned it, but just so you guys can write down the reference and read it later. Mark 10, verses 17 through 31. God called this rich man to give away, sell his goods, and give the money to the poor. This does not mean every person who follows Jesus has to become poor. That's not the point. The specific reason why Jesus asked the rich young ruler to do this was because of his attachment to money. 
So if you're talking to a person who has a lot of money, or maybe they don't, because sometimes poor people think about money more than rich people do, right? It does, it's not about the amount of money. The point is, if you're talking to a person who, based on the fruit of their life, is attached to money, this is a problem in their life. Part of them repenting means either letting go of that attachment or simply giving away their money. And sometimes the only way to prove that they let go of that attachment is to give away their money. Sometimes it's not necessary. Sometimes it is. It depends on the person. The point is, in general, which what, what we started with, is that we renounce attachment to material possessions or human relationships. Sometimes this means you have to let go of relationships, and sometimes this means you have to let go of certain material goods or possessions. But a person has to be willing to do that. So that's that fifth form of repentance. All five of these points are basically a synopsis of everything that Jesus talked about when it came to repentance. And I'll say it again because I don't think it could be overemphasized that Jesus taught all these things to people who were not yet his followers. Why? Who can think of a reason? Why would Jesus say this to people who didn't even follow him yet? To count the cost. Exactly. Luke 14, the, the reference I gave you guys in Luke 14, this is exactly the reason. Jesus said, he said, nobody builds a building without first sitting down and counting whether they have enough to finish the project. You make sure you have the resources before you start the project. No king goes to battle against another king without determining if he has enough soldiers and might to be able to defeat a king who has more or a greater army than he does. In the same way, he says, whoever does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. If you're not willing to lose everything for him, then you can't be his disciple. You can't follow him. So before following him, you have to ask yourself, Am I willing to lose everything? Doesn't mean that I will lose everything, but I have to be willing to lose it all. That willingness is the, count, the cost that has to be counted. That's why Jesus taught this to unbelievers. There's a uh, young man that um, Jacob and I are actually meeting with on Thursdays who it's so interesting how many times he has said, with his mouth, he wants to follow Jesus or that he does follow Jesus. He says it a lot, actually. But then we've just been continuing to ask him questions and we study things about the cost, about what it actually takes to follow Jesus. And then he'll begin to disagree. Why? Because he hasn't counted the cost yet, which means he hasn't followed Jesus yet, but he wants to believe that he is. So our job is basically to prove to him that he's not, which won't feel good for him, but that's necessary. Yeah, question? Go for it. So, as an unbeliever, you wouldn't have the Holy Spirit. So wouldn't the Holy Spirit be the motivation for someone to be able to desire or want to make the choice to give up everything for Jesus? Because I would think that the only way that someone can really make a decision for Jesus is if they have the Holy Spirit, because without the Holy Spirit, they would have no, why would someone want to serve God if it required that much sacrifice? Exactly. That's exactly right. Great point. A person can't do these things if the Holy Spirit's not moving on them. And that's why it needs to be taught. Because when you teach these things, 
The word convicts. And the Bible says that in John 16, Jesus taught that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. So if you're speaking to a person and the word on which the spirit moves convicts them, then it's telling you that he's moving in their life and you would then expect that they will take action on it. If a person's not convicted by it and they repeatedly deny it, that means the Holy Spirit has not convicted them or that they're not accepting that conviction, in which case they're not going to decide to believe and follow Jesus. So using these scriptures or these essentials of repentance is basically a way that you introduce the word through which the Holy Spirit will move to convict a person. Jesus said that the words that I speak to you, this is John 6, 63, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. The word is spirit. So Jesus taught. In 1 John it says the word and the spirit agree as one. So without the word, you don't have the spirit. Without the spirit, you don't have the word. You have to have both. Ministering these words is the same as administering the spirit to convict a person. If they're convicted and they begin to take action, that's a good sign. That most likely means they either are being saved or they're about to. If they don't respond to it and they're not convicted, they're just simply not responding. Yes. So in summary, what I just gathered is the word introduces the Holy Spirit to someone. So like when you're introducing the word, it's as if it's speaking life anyways, right? So I mean, the mm -hmm. word, the Holy Spirit, it's the same anyway. So right. I was just kind of trying to wrap my head around that. Yep. 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 Exactly. The spirit uses the word to convict people. Yeah. A verse? Yeah. What's the verse? Yep. It says, no one can come to me unless my father who sent me draws him. Mm -hmm. And how does the father draw people? Yeah. The spirit through the word or the word through the spirit. He uses the word to do it. If people don't hear the gospel, they won't come to faith. That's why faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If a person is going to be convicted unto faith, they have to hear the word. Amen? And this is the word that we're talking about. Okay, how are we doing on time here? Okay, we're good. All right. So, next, so we just covered the repentance topic. We'll cover the belief one. This will be a shorter to cover because it's pretty basic. Most of you guys will We'll know more details about this one. Now, just to make sure, this is kind of a pop quiz question. When the Bible says, or when Jesus says, like let's say John 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. What does it mean to believe in him? Whoever wants to answer can raise their hand. Jacob? Have to have faith? What does it mean to have faith? Be obedient? Yeah. Luke? Trust to trust him? Yeah. Fearing. Fearing him? Yeah. If you have belief, your actions will show it. Yeah. So, in one more comment? Yeah. Make the Bible your authority. Sure. Yeah. So, all, all valid points, those are all true. And what what you guys will notice with those comments is that what this tells you is that you have this expression of faith or trust 
in someone that's proven through their actions. That's what faith is. Faith has always been that. And what's interesting is that people in human relationships will acknowledge that if you trust a person, you're going to show it in your actions. But for whatever reason, when it comes to relationship with God, people want to believe that they can just say that they believe and not doing, do anything about it and think that that's enough. And that's not faith, right? John, or excuse me, James uh, chapter 2 in, in verse 26 says, faith without works is dead. If it's dead, it, 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 it isn't. It's not valid. In that same chapter, James 2, he says, I will show you my faith by my works. He precedes that by saying, we should just read the, the passage, actually, just so we get more details. James 2. Verse 18, James 2, 18, he says, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. And then he challenges them and says, Show me your faith without your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, you've got people who separate these two categories, and they say there's faith, and then there's works. In one sense, that's true, but I won't get into that. that ha that's, talk that's about works of the law. In this context, he's saying, People create this dichotomy and think that you have faith and you have works and that they're completely separate from one another. James is teaching that they're interdependent, which means if you're saying faith and works are separate, show me you believe without any action at all. Is that possible? The only thing a person has at that point is their words, their claims, that they claim to believe. But everyone knows if you have claims without corresponding action, those claims are false. And then he's saying, I will show you my faith by my works, and I don't even have to say anything. I can say once I believe it, and in my actions, I'll show you that I believe it. Right? So, when you have Jesus saying, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life, like John 3.16, he's basically saying, whoever believes and shows it by their actions has everlasting life. Works don't save you, but if you have faith, there will be works, right? That's the difference between being justified by works and being justified by faith. Now, when it comes to the specifics of belief, there are different phrases that Jesus used as identifiers for who he is that are to specify what exactly about him we are to believe. There are, there's something called the seven I am statements in the gospel of John, where Jesus says, for example, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection, the life. I am the way, the truth and the life, so on and so forth. Those are called I am statements. Jesus said things like that to basically add layers to what about him we're supposed to believe. He's trying to break it down. He uses all kinds of analogies, the bread of life, the good shepherd, examples like that. But when it comes to the essentials, there are also, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, just like with the repentance category, there's five general categories for what we're supposed to believe. And this won't take long. These are pretty simple and straightforward. The first, you see this in John three sixteen. he says he's the son of God. And physically, he's the son of God. And you have 
other verses like in 1 John that say that he's God in the flesh. If a person is to believe or is to be saved, they have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God or that he's God manifest in the flesh. There's a passage in John uh, 8 where Jesus says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. That phrase, I am, should ring a bell from another story in the Bible. Who knows what it is? You know? Moses. Yep, exactly. Moses goes to the burning bush. And Moses says, well, what if they, they, I mean, they don't know you, Lord. Like, what, how do I identify you? What do I say your name is to the people of Israel? And God says, you shall say to them that my name is, I am who I am. You shall say, I am is the one who sent you. Jesus quotes that seven times in John and says, unless you believe that I am, you will die on your sins. In his own words, Jesus is teaching that it's essential to believe that he not only was sent from God, but that he is God. And that's identified by the phrase, the son of God, which makes him physically human and also deity at the same time that he is God. You could just summarize it saying that we have to believe that Jesus is God in the flesh or the son of God. Then you've got, this is the second one that Jesus is the Messiah and the savior of the world. There's a few different scriptures that talk about this, about Jesus being savior. You can look at Matthew 1 verse 21 says he came to save people from their sins. And just as another little quiz question. When Jesus referred to himself as the son of man, in scripture, you guys probably are familiar with that. Who knows what that means when he called himself the son of man? Where does that come from? What's that? No? Close. Partly, yes. But the, fr the phrase, the son of man, is taken from a prophecy in the Old Testament. Daniel. Yes, exactly. The, the Messiah or the Christ that Daniel prophesies about, he identifies with the name Son of Man. So Son of Man is true also in the sense, yes, that he had a human lineage that makes him a son of, you know, this human lineage. But the Son of Man is a title, a messianic title from the prophet Daniel. So when Jesus called himself the Son of Man, he was calling himself the Messiah. He was telling people, I am the Christ. That's what that means. So he told us to believe that he's, he's the Messiah, the Christ, and the Savior of the world. And what does he save us from? Our sins? Yeah, what do our sins lead to? The wages of sin is death. That death is condemnation or the judgment and the wrath of God. So if you put it into two categories... Christ saves us from sin, and he saves us from God's judgment or wrath. Included in that would be the power of the devil. Jesus, uh, Acts also says that we're delivered from the power of Satan, but Satan uses sin. So if you say you're saved from your sins and you're saved from God's judgment, you, you cover what it is that Jesus saves us from. 
Another good, good reference to write down. This just talks about this generally as John 5, verse 24. John 5, verse 24. It says, He who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has everlasting life, and he shall not enter into judgment because he has passed from death unto life. So you've got Jesus as the Messiah or the Son of Man and the Savior of the world. Third one. This speaks to Jesus' death and resurrection or his crucifixion and resurrection. John the Baptist in John 1 verse 29 referred to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God is a reference to what? Burnt offerings and sacrifices. Yep, exactly. Because they would sacrifice a lamb on the Day of Atonement to atone for the sins of the people. So Jesus is being identified as the one who bears, atones for, and takes away the sins of the world. And he did that through his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. And Jesus repeatedly told his hearers that he was going to be the one to bear the judgment of God and that he was going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners, persecuted, killed, crucified, raised up, raised up the third day. Jesus taught this. A good reference to have in your arsenal besides John 1, 29 is John 12, verses 31 through 33. This one I would like to read. John 12, through 33. Jesus is speaking to a group of people that includes both his disciples and some Gentiles, actually. And he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Peoples actually is italicized, which means, or men or peoples is italicized, which means it's not there. He just says, I will draw all to myself. And it says, this he said, signifying by what death he would die. So he says two things about his death. The world is going to be judged. The devil will be cast out and he will be lifted up from the earth. That's his crucifixion as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So you've got, he's saying, I'm going to hang on a cross. The judgment of the world is going to happen at that moment, and the devil will be cast out. So he's basically saying, I'm going to defeat sin and Satan through the death that he would die. And so this is one of the more famous places where you have Jesus saying, hey, believing in me also means believing that I'm the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that I'm going to die and rise again, which we know is, of course, Absolutely essential to believing in who Jesus is. This uh, next point is real short. It's just that Jesus is eternal life, resurrection, and the way to the Father. This has to do with our both present and future relationship to God. We'll be reconciled to God, reconciled to the Father, physically raised up again one day and have everlasting life. 
I would say the most famous passage we hear for this is John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Notice he didn't say, I'm the way to heaven. He said, I'm the way to the Father, which makes it relational rather than locational, right? It's not just about where you go. It's about who you know, right? So he's saying, I'm the way to a relationship with God. That's the point. If you want to get to God, you want to get to the Father, he's the way. And that's referred to as eternal life in John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, who is the Father, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing God and knowing Christ is eternal life. And eternal life is to know God and to know Jesus. It's about the relationship. Then the last point, also brief, that because Jesus rose again from the dead, because we believe that he rose again from the dead. Jesus and the apostles also taught to unbelieving audiences that Jesus would one day return as judge of the earth, of the whole earth. So believing in Jesus, to Jesus, and to his disciples also meant believing that he was going to physically return one day and judge the earth in righteousness. And uh, great passages for that to write down will be Acts 10, verse 42. It's Acts 10, verse 42. And then Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. A good one for Jesus' words is Matthew 16, verse 27. There's just a few for you guys to write down. Matthew 16, verse 27. Matthew 16, verse 27. Did everyone get those three references down? Okay. So, in short, these are the five points that basically summarize everything Jesus taught about what exactly we believe about him, the person of Jesus Christ. That's that he's the Son of God or God in the flesh, that he's the Messiah and the Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away sin through his death and resurrection. He is eternal life and the way to relationship with God. And because he rose from the dead, he will return as judge. All things Jesus said about himself. So we've covered repent and believe for the first two. The last category, follow, is real basic. Jesus told his disciples, follow me. I mentioned this at the beginning. Follow me means to be a student. And it means to follow his example. Learn what he said. Say what he said. Do what he did. That's what following Jesus means. Uh, you have learn what he said. Say what he said. And do what he did. This is the ultimate response of a person who has put their faith in Jesus. They're going to begin the steps of being a student of Jesus, which begins to learn from his word, and then ultimately learn to say what he said and do what he did. And a good study, I won't give you guys all the references, but it's just a good start to read through Matthew and just find all the places where Jesus told people, follow me.
or come follow me, that kind of language, and that'll give you examples of how Jesus did this. And then one scripture to summarize it all is Luke chapter 6, verse 40. Luke chapter 6, verse 40. 4 zero. Jesus said, it is enough or it's sufficient for a disciple to be like his master. Yep, or like his teacher. The disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect or perfectly trained shall be like his master. So Luke 6 verse 40 is trying to say. That's what following Jesus ultimately means, is to emulate his example. Okay. That covers, and of course that starts with learning the Bible. A person has to be a student of the Bible to start this off. So, we'll close uh, this part of the, or we'll close the teaching for this week. Next week we'll get into the, the next phase of this. But all of this is about us knowing how Jesus preached the gospel, how he introduced and taught the gospel to people who did not yet follow him, to encourage them to follow him. Now, notice that all these verses that we went through, through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, span the entire three and a half years of Jesus' earthly ministry, which means you can't just unload all of this on, pers on a person in a single conversation. Okay? <laughs> we covered a lot in the amount of time that we've gone over this. It took Jesus three and a half years to get all this information out. Okay? And this is to a lot of people. So, of course, he's, you know, we're dealing with thousands of people that Jesus preached to. If you're doing this with one person, and let's say you meet with them once a week, depending on where they're at in their knowledge, it could be different. But if you're, especially if we're talking about a person who knows nothing, like they've, they've never heard of the name of Jesus, it will take a while to get from point A to point B, which is obviously unsaved to saved if there's absolutely no knowledge. For others, it'll be, it'll be faster. Like with Jacob, for example, he had a lot of exposure growing up, and it was only probably a few conversations, maybe a, a month, maybe, that just took you to like, actually get saved, would you say? Yeah. So it happened really fast for Jacob because he had a lot of knowledge that was already built up up to that point. And so it, it happened fast. But somebody else who knows absolutely nothing, it will take a while. So you can assume at least that if somebody knows nothing and you're building relationship with them, that it will, it will likely take a few years in order to get them all the way through this process. But no, all of these things that we've gone over are all things that Jesus taught to people when he was preaching the gospel through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're all essential for a person's knowledge in order for them to know who Jesus is, what he said, and what he called us to. That being repenting and turning to God, believing in who he is and what he said, and then following him. And that's taking the action. So, thank you guys for listening to all of this. I know this was a lot of information. It's important to do your own study. For practice, like, if you guys, okay. If you guys wrote this in your own organized outline, great. You can start using it. But this is also being put into a more organized, uh, into an organized format. I have it pulled up on my laptop right now, but this is going to be printed and we're going to turn it into basically, so there, it's going to be part of like a, a mini book that kind of goes over this information and this is going to turn into the class that we want to do on a regular basis. Like I said, we don't know if it's going to be quarterly, more or less than that, um, but we're going to try to cover this on some kind of regular basis. 
and so, so that we all stay refreshed on it. And if you follow like this pattern, this is it's just what how Jesus taught it, and you talk about these things over the course of a relationship with a person that you're either talking to about Jesus or that you're discipling, what have you, it's important to cover all these topics because Jesus covered all these topics. Amen? And if as a already a follower of Jesus, if you're not completely informed as to what all of these things mean, then it's important, of course, to study these for yourself as well.